Welcome, everyone. Come on in. Come on in. As always, first, become part of the family. Join the newsletter, www.truehousestories.com. www.truehousestories.com. Come part of the family. And you'll learn about all disco, house, and beyond of all the luminaries that had graced us with their presence on our show each and every week. First, I want to thank everyone for the thousands, and when I say thousands because of this show, of shout-outs to me for my birthday. And it felt phenomenal turning 29 again. I will say it was a wonderful feeling to feel that feeling at 29. <laughs> so enough of the jokes anyway. I want to say welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. Today's a special episode. I'm a fan of this man that I'm going to be bringing up. I've read his books. He has, through his extensive research, through his studies as he was a scholar, which he will tell the story, and now as professor at a college, he has written some unprecedented, I'm going to call them novels, with tremendous <laughs> plethora of information. You know, everybody knows about last night, a DJ saved my life and all those great songs. But, you know, this one is Love Saves the Day. So I just want to show the picture first. And this man's name, i like to welcome to the stage, Mr. Tim Lawrence. Hello, 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 hello. 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 Thank you, Lenny. Thank you. Real pleasure to be here. To be here with one of my house music heroes. Oh, thanks, Tim. And thank you for doing what you do, because you made uh, something that was of myth become documented. A lot of things that were spoken about behind the scenes. And I, when I was growing up, coming up in the business, there was a lot of these stories that we spoke about. And others that were older than us who were there would tell us these stories. But to actually see them in one one book, one place, and actually read it, and then reread it just in case you didn't understand it the first time, I must, if I could take a hat off, <laughs> I shall take my hat off to you and say, well done, Governor. Well Thank done. But before we get into anything, two questions I asked. Number one, mm. how you been dealing with COVID? And then we'll get into the story, of course. Mm. How's COVID been, how's life been for you during this whole crazy time? Uh, so, you know, I think uh, it's been difficult in many ways. It's been strange in many ways. In other ways, it, there's been some possibilities. I'm, I'm a relatively privileged person. I think that um, I have I, I actually lost half of my job to COVID, uh, half of my university job, and that was a bit of a shock, um, and that was very unpleasant. And uh, I didn't lose half of my actual work. I have to do just as much work, but I lost half of my income. So that's oh. unwelcome. Uh, that hasn't been great. Um, the parties that I'm involved in in running, um, all our friends and Lucky Cloud. Lucky Cloud is the one that goes back the longest to 2003. That was when David Mancuso uh, approached me and Colleen Murphy and suggested we start to do parties with him in London. Those parties obviously haven't been running, um, and that's been that's been tough. Actually, uh, it's been it, we, you, you lose a, you lose a part of your life. 
Um, you lose, you know, these the, the parties, I think, for many of us operate in ways that we can't always quite define. Um, because, you know, the people we, we're friendly with at these parties, we're not always socialising and hanging out with them at, outside of the parties. There's a kind of a different kind of sociality or friendship kind of can develop within them. But um, as we all know, these these dance floors are, are sources of life for us, of expression, of connectivity. Um, in these spaces, we, we, we move and we operate and we find meaning in different ways. And it's been very... Um, it's been difficult to not not have that sort of source of rejuvenation and inspiration and and music and sound systems and and dance movement. So that hasn't been that hasn't that's been difficult. I have, I, I haven't lost anyone very close to me to COVID, so I'm lucky in that way. Although I lost half my job, I haven't you know I you know it hasn't been a problem putting food on the plate. So I know with a lot of people who had a much tougher time in COVID and, you know, so I have, I, I've been relatively fortunate, but um, there has been some, some awkwardness, some difficulty. I did at the beginning of COVID, like many people decide, okay, so what am I, you know, what, what am I going to do with this time? And I was able to spend more time with my daughters, more time with my partner. This was all, this was, this was a gift as well. Uh, The weather in London, the first two or three months of COVID in particular during lockdown was incredible. It was set and there were no cars on the streets. It was just like, wow, London was so beautiful. The air was so clean. The parks were glistening. It was like, you know, that was a, that was, that was a, that was a nice, that was, that was good. Um, I appreciated that for sure for a period. And the other thing is that I got to finally, just decided, okay, now is the time to start work on another book. Uh, since the last one came out in uh, late 2016, I seem to have been very busy for a quite a long period, kind of, you know, engaging with the interest in that book, you know, a few tours and just like, but just life and the things that, you know, stuff going on around me, there seems to be, there seems to have been kind of more and more of it. And uh, and that's all been exciting and and you know and engaging and meaningful, but it it kind of spiraled to the point where I wasn't gonna wasn't getting any book writing done, and I was like, uh oh, this is you know this is a bit of an issue for me. I do I do. There's more I want to write about, so I did get going on another book. Um, so that's that's kind of my sort of my COVID story. Okay. Um, well, the wider you. community, of course, the wider community has been heartbreaking to see how musicians and DJs and clubs have have struggled. Uh, economically and in the UK in particular the, the support has been uh, late and meagre and I think we're, we're only just coming out of it now and um, and we don't know we might end up going back in it as well and I don't know if we've quite managed to quantify what the losses are yet I think that will slowly become apparent to us partly as we regroup as communities and we start to you know start to have conversations again I did I haven't spent that much time online on during COVID. If anything, I spent less time online during COVID than beforehand. Um, I just felt like I didn't want that kind of that buzz really. And I know lots of people have found important meaning and connection through that. But that's also I'm just saying this because it's I feel like a bit out of touch in some respects. I think if I'd been spending more time online, I would I wouldn't need to go to a party to find out how everyone's been doing. But we are beginning to reconnect and um and that's where it feels really important, actually. I think we've got we have got a lucky cloud party coming up on third of October, 
And it's like, it's, it's strained. We're doing the rapid flow test beforehand. Uh, everyone's got to present the test in order to get in. We're having to change some things about how we're doing the party, starting earlier, ending earlier so that we can have the windows open so we don't disturb the neighbours too much. There's all these little changes that are going on. Um, but I think over, and it was a difficult decision to know whether we should go ahead with the party because, we, you know, we're not, it's not as though we, everything is clear in the UK yet. There is still a threat. There are many people not vaccinated. There are some limits to the vaccinations, we all, as we all know. Um, so we weren't, you know, it wasn't a, a straightforward decision to go ahead. And I know in New York, they're tossing and turning about uh, when those parties should start again. Uh, but we did make the decision on balance in the end to do it. Um, and um, and overall, I think people, it seems as though we're getting it. People are happy that we're doing this. Good. So, so that's my that's my COVID story. You gave us a very clinical opinion on it. I love it. It was very clinical. I feel like my clinical <laughs> correspondent in the UK, Tim <laughs> Lawrence, just gave us a. Like, oh no, I don't want to be clinical. No, it's perfect. No, it's actually it's actually very. You know. Also, I'm going to give Ultra Tay. Um, she was the same when she explained it as well. She broke it down in layman's terms. We found out in her story mm. that. Years, she was going to become a doctor. So it was like, yeah, see, that's the same thing. I went like that. That's the same expression. I went, fantastic. And I could understand. I could understand listening when she was exp- I'm saying, man, you're very knowledgeable. Like, in a not layman's, you're knowledgeable, like on a medical level. Nah. Nah. So, I, but thank you on that. Also, yes, we are here in the same situation wondering mm. if we're going to be going back to a lockdown. We don't know. We're hoping mm. not. But all do tell all it will only tell when the flu season begins mm. and how bad things start spreading. If it starts and when spreading, people people start spending more time indoors and less time outdoors and that kind right, of thing. Right, because we've been blessed to, everybody's outside. Windows yeah. are fully open, everybody's dancing, everything is fabulous. Mm. But when we go back indoors, will it be another dark winter? Oh Lord mm. help us. Okay, so let's get to the nitty-gritty. Because um, I know, listen, everybody, we're shutting down at nine o'clock UK time. Regardless, he's got an appointment, so we got to get every question in. Good Here, we go. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. So, um, music finds you as a young man. Take us from that journey, how it begins for you, because I know you know you're a, an avid collector of music. We don't know much about if you studied any instruments or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I'd like to know that as how you go from that part to the bridge of coming into living in New York. And you could tell us a story. Mm-hmm. I know it's yeah. going to be very dynamic. So, well, I don't want, you know, I'm, 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 an, I'm kind of, uh, yeah, well, it's, uh, let me stop uh, umming and ahhing and just say that. You know, I don't. I don't know if I give any special meaning to growing up as a kid listening to music. All I know is that it it moved me, and that um, you know I had limited. In some ways, I had limited access to music, as did many people. I mean, now everything has changed, as we know, with the internet. But my my access to limited to music was fairly limited. Um, I did develop an early and long passion for David Bowie. Um, there's something about, I think, I suppose if I were now to sort of try and understand a bit more, I haven't really thought about this, but there was something about, you know, his artistry, um, his, you know, his, the, the, pa- the sort of the sense of passion that he conveyed in his voice. Um, it wasn't a, it wasn't a technical voice necessarily, um, but it was a, pa- it conveyed emotion. And I, uh, I felt, um, 
you know, this was as an adolescent, um, I, uh, as an as, as a teenager growing up, I really sort of, you know, that was that was important for me. Um, but I was also drawn, and you know, after after Bowie passed, um, well, I forget when that was, but it was a few years ago. Uh, and it was, you know, it was kind of, I'd lost touch with his music, but I'd also had, had just reconnected with it because his final albums were quite interesting. Um, and it, but it was interesting in preparing for, you know, parties and and maybe, um, maybe putting on music at parties that you want to sort of pick out a track, right, from the this, this you know, these historic legendary figures who, who maybe passed, who have gone uh, to just pay tribute to them. And it wasn't that straightforward going back through the David Bowie catalogue to find records that I still, that I felt might work on a dance floor. Um, it's neither here nor there. I'm just, I'm just saying, it was, Bowie was a big guy for me, but a big artist for me. But there's, but it sort of, it did fade at one point. And I found my, I was very, I really loved, I, mean, I was born in 1967. So um, by the time, I mean, my first album was probably Bowie's Scary Monsters, uh, which had the single Ashes to Ashes on it. And that was kind of, you know, him dressed up as a clown walking along a beach, having a conversation with an, uh, an aging lady. Um, it was very surreal, very artistic. And uh, and the, the Ashes to Ashes is a really interesting record. It's a beautiful record, and it's quite it's, it's Bowie continuing his exploration with electronics. Uh, and there's a there's a track on that album as well called Fashion, which is kind of a bit like pro is a bit like Mutant Disco basically. Um, and I would rediscover Mutant Disco if you like many years later. But it was a Bowie was a big influence on the new, what we sometimes call the New Romantics. It was a movement um, that kind of developed in the uk in the early 1980s uh, there was it was a lot of it was around synth, uh, synthesizer music which actually also became really big in new york in the, in the early 1980s there was bands like visage and ultravox and duran duran and they were quite danceable and they were using electronics they stood behind synthesizers they were kind of you know subsequent incarnations if you like of you know heavily influenced by craft work um, and this music was just like it really you know I, it was just uh, i i I really became kind of pa passionate about this. I would dress up in the clothes. I would wear my mum's clothes, my mum's makeup, all the rest of it, uh, go, going out to kind of school discos and what have you. And um, so those were some early early points. But the thing that I think recurred for me is that I, I was drawn to rhythmic music. Um, I liked disco. Um, but, you know, to me, disco was also the music that I would hear on the radio as I was growing up as a, as a, as a, as a kid. You know, I was born in 67, so if the peak of disco is, let's say, 1977, I was a 10-year-old then. Uh, and, you know, by the time you're 15 or by the time you're um, 18, you're not generally listen into listening to the music you're into as a 10-year-old. So it wasn't like I felt like disco was kind of the heart of music for me, if you like. Um, I'm not sure I'd even say that now, by the way. But, um, but, uh, but I was drawn, I, I wanted rhythmic music and I wasn't quite finding what I wanted, interestingly. Um, and the first time I found what I wanted was in in was really in 1988, um, and I was a student in Manchester studying politics and, and modern history. I've got to keep my eye on the camera. I'm moving all over the place. Uh, I was studying uh, politics and modern history. I was going to stay up in in uh, the, for the summer in Manchester uh, to work running a, a summer camp for kids. And a friend of mine who was also working on the camp said, oh, I hear the Hacienda's really good. Uh, we should go down there. And this was a Wednesday night. I knew nothing really about what we might call club culture. I mean, really nothing. Uh, I'd been out a few times. I was mainly, I was kind of quite, I was into politics. I was into student union politics. Um, 
I, I love music, but I wasn't, I didn't have, it wasn't somehow, I wasn't into a kind of going out scene really. But I went out uh, that night on a Wednesday night of all nights to this, this uh, night called Hot at Hacienda. And it sort of, it did, it was the beginning of the change of my life because this was the summer of love in the UK. Um, house music had, had, had taken the north of England in particular by storm. A lot gets written about uh, how house music came to the to London via Ibiza. But um, the north was always always dancing to up-tempo music um, from New York and Detroit uh, and Philadelphia. Uh, and house had exploded in Manchester. And I walked into the scene and I'd never seen anything remotely like it before. I don't know what the capacity of the Hacienda was. If it was a thousand people, there were podiums around the space. There was, it was kind of like walking into a building site. That was kind of, it was an ex industrial, it was kind of an ex industrial style building. I would read subsequently that the sound system wasn't supposed to be very good, but you know, I, my ears weren't tuned to go party and club sound systems at that point. I heard, music at volume that was absolutely pulsating it was and even before i had a chance to hear what was maybe the first mix within 10 seconds of seeing this scene unfolding in front of me i just threw myself into it went up on a podium and threw my hands in the air and that was that it was it was instantaneous there was no thought process or analysis required. I had arrived at something that I just thought was incredible. And it was, you know, and a lot of it was about house music and it felt very avant-garde. It felt very experimental, but it also felt very connected. It was, it felt, it was warm music. It was pulsating music. Um, so it was partly that, but it was also the, it was also the scene of what, you know, what we could call collective joy. Um, seeing everyone celebrate and do so in an uninhibited way. I had no idea about MDMA and ecstasy at the point, at that time. And the tabloids would go on to become full of this stuff, ecstasy orgies, nonsense like that, uh, uh, the Hacienda and what have you. Um, to me, it was, you know, I, I suppose I lived it vicariously. Um, you know, I would later go and take ecstasy and MDMA for sure. But that night, it was I didn't have a clue about it and it didn't really matter. It was like the energy was pulsing. Did you did you know that that was called house music, or you just heard the pulsating beat? No, I didn't. I don't think I even knew it was called house music at that point. I mean, there had been a couple of. I mean, I would later go on to look into this, and there had been a couple of of house hits in house hits in the UK already. Some Chica early Chicago move, uh, move your body. I think uh, maybe I forget what the actual tracks were. Um, so. I'm just trying to think, like Mars, pump up the volume, but that may have been, a, I don't know if that was 88 or if that was maybe a year or two later. But no, I didn't really know what was going on. Um, I would find out relatively soon afterwards. Um, but it was definitional. I mean, the, the weird, the, the embarrassing part of this story is that I then went back in the autumn, excited to take my friends down to the Hacienda and decided to go down on a Friday night this is all, you know, it's all pre-internet and I wasn't really following the listings and what have you. Um, it just wasn't somehow part of my world. I went down on a Friday night and it was an indie night. Uh, indie, you know, and I was just like, oh, what has happened to this place? You know? <laughs> I'm not so keen on it anymore. I mean, I just didn't know that you had to go on certain nights were dedicated to certain sounds and certain crowds. As I say, it's embarrassing to be, you know, con uh, confessing to this, but I, I wasn't really didn't know at the time the, the point at which i started to know was about two or three years later around 1990 1991 i'd moved back to london um i mean you know i'd, I'd suffered some tragedy um uh, in the big 
uh, in my second year at university. So this is, no, sorry, the end of my, the second part term at my first year at university, which is so early 1987, my dad passed away in the middle of a hip operation uh, and it, he wasn't supposed to die. And it was very, very shocking. I was very close to him. Uh, it hit me really hard. Uh, this is probably one of the reasons why I wasn't going out passing a whole lot uh, when I was a, when I was a young student. Um, and then um, three years later, my mum died. Um, of, uh, she had stomach cancer, and uh, I, I kind of my feeling was always she never she just never really recovered from my dad dying, um, and that that was that kind of caused her her cancer. And um, and it was it's hard to really just put this you know to um, go back there. I mean, I do think about them often, but it's kind of um, just thinking about that specific moment. But it left me feeling very bereft. Uh, I, I lost my anchor. I lost, you know, parents who I was. I was fortunate to have incredibly devoted and engaging, caring, loving, generous, and you know, culturally and intellectually alive parents uh, who I spent a lot of time with. So I was. I kind of felt. I, although I had a very dear uncle and auntie um, who were who survived them and were you know very caring towards me, there was you know it was like the world was taken from under my feet, and. Um, I'd entered. I'd, I'd kind of decided to go into journal to, after I graduated to try and get into journalism, uh, and I was in journalism school. And a friend of mine from university, who was also involved with kind of politics, uh, basically said, "Do you want to come to a rave?" So I started to kind of go to sorts of some raves in. in I think it was probably late 1990, early 1991, and they were extraordinary scenes. Um, you know, I suppose what we, we would probably say that that what we'd call techno music was being played. Um, it was pretty stripped down. Um, it wasn't entirely soul. It wasn't organised around soulfulness. Certainly wasn't. There wasn't much jazz going on there. There were elements of dub were certainly incorporated. It was not a dissimilar scene to the one I experienced at the Hacienda. It was a scene of collective joy um, and of people caring who didn't people who were strangers looking after each other and and enjoying each other's company. And I did find it meaningful, but I did find it uns- there was something unsustainable about it um the kind of the driving late at night not necessarily knowing where you were going the the the, the hours that were being you know the 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 sheer intensity of the of the scene was compelling but i didn't somehow or other um it wasn't obviously sustainable or it wasn't what i what i was it wasn't the it wasn't the essence of what i wanted to kind of stay with i hadn't quite found my home yet let's put it that way and the same friend only, you know, just a few months later said, oh, I had, you know, I want to take you to this this club. Uh, it was called the Gardening Club. Um, it was The night was feel real. It was a Friday night uh, party. There were four, it was a collective of four DJs run by um, a guy called Chris, the Rhythm Doctor. Um, and I went there and um, I never, I, you know, that was it. That was, that was, in a way, that was the, you know, the other night. My life kind of changed, if you like. It was an under, it was a kind of basement venue. The sound was good. The ceilings were quite reasonably low. It was actually a room that was kind of divided into <clears throat> four parts, but all the four parts were connected. Um, so you really felt like there was a real intimacy there. And the sound that was being played that night, or, or that, that party, was basically New York house music. And this opened me up musically in ways that Rave hadn't. Um, it was it was the it was it was house music as I'd heard it at the hacienda, but there was clearly a new level of emphasis on soulfulness, um, elements of R and B, jazz and dub, uh, as well as significant uh, influences from Latin America, 
and Africa were all being incorporated into this music that I felt at that moment had infinite potential. It was like the house beat was a matrix and you could feed whatever you wanted into that matrix. And to me, mixing was like magic. You know, the transition, I, all, I even went up to cry, but quite soon afterwards, I befriended Chris um, and I start, you know, I thought his, his selections are amazing. I was beginning, I was working in journalism by this point. Um, I was earning decent money um, and I had some spare money and I'd give him like 50 pounds a week. I guess it's like $75. And I'd say, just get me whatever you'll get, wh- whatever records you're getting. Um, and, you know, that carried, it didn't carry on for that long because at some point I started going to the record stores myself. But that was, that was kind of, you know, I just like, I just, I was, I was feeding off this, this music was like blood to me. It was like water. It was just kind of, I felt it was essential to my system. What, and, um, yeah, while you were doing that, while you were doing that, and I, I know Chris, really great, yeah, yeah. great person, great DJ. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I played there as well. Um, what kind of journalism were you doing that you were earning good? You said, I'm yeah, I was in I was in uh, political journalism. I mean, I'm I'm still am. I'm I'm you know I'm quite. Political. So is that dealing is that dealing with like parliament issues and things? Yeah, exactly. Like- well, it's a really good question because I was I was getting into there was TV programs that were basically weekly uh, TV programs about the the week a week in Westminster, a week in Parliament. Um, I was involved in some documentaries, uh, investigative documentaries. Um, that were kind of analysing, you know, government changes to the health service or the education system. I, I had some research skills, um, and I had I'd been sort of wondering whether I wanted to go into work in a university as a as a as a researcher, and a lecturer, or whether I wanted to go into journalism. And at that point, I felt it was all I really wanted to be a journalist, or I felt that the the, the choice I wanted to make was journalism because. It, it was more immediate. It seemed to have more impact. It was more up to it was more up to speed, um, and yeah, I just thought that that was kind of um, that was what I wanted to do. And I, it's not as though I would, yeah. No, and I was into politics, and I was into political change, um, and I felt that this would would be meaningful. But I, after after doing it for a few years, I became a little bit disillusioned, and I was also, I would say, uh, a little bit depressed. And being a, a little bit depressed had some had quite a lot to do with my parents having uh, passed away. Um, so I got to the point where I and I also the other thing is I, I suppose and you you know you kind of pr- probably get a hint of a sense of this by by if you kind of like hold love saves the day and it's five hundred pages long, and I I just felt a bit frustrated that even though I was working at the more analytical end of journalism, like the late night TV shows that would kind of be an hour long analysis of the day's news or, you know, documentary series that would be six parts on the health service or whatever. I still wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't finding it fulfilling. I wanted long, I wanted a long form, really. I didn't want short form. Um, If you put it in DJ terms, I wanted the 12 hour set, not the one hour banger, banging kind of, you know, you know, going drive the crowd wild and then head off again. I just, I wanted to get really, I wanted to get deep into what I was doing. So I'd kind of felt like journalism wasn't quite where I wanted to be. There's a very, a big moment was hearing a guy, a a professor who's a Palestinian professor who was based at Columbia University uh, in New York um, called Edward Said, who wrote about literature and wrote about the cultural politics of literature and uh, was a key figure in this field that was emerging called post-colonial studies. Um, And he had, 
as in addition to all his kind of interesting work, had, had written something uh, had done a, for the BBC, had, had contributed what was called the Wreath Lecture Series, uh, which was a series of uh, six lectures, invited lectures, and he did it on what he called the public intellectual. And this can sound a bit... Um, uh, I don't know, I'm not trying to sort of be funny when I say these kind of things or pompous or what have you. But the the key thing I got out of this is if you go to a work in a university, you don't have to only be inward looking, writing for people who are also researchers or maybe um, maybe are your students. That um, You can be an outward facing person, an outward facing researcher if you're based in a university. And I was like, ah, this is it. This is what I want to do. Um, Rather than the kind of daily deadline of journalism, I'd like to get a job in university, but the kind of books that I might write or the research I would do, while I want it to be serious research and I want it to make a contribution to knowledge, which is what kind of research is supposed to do, I want it to be accessible for a wider audience. I want to be looking outwards. The other thing that happened is I just got fed up with politics. Uh, I mean, I'm still, I'm still taking, I follow it. I think it's important to vote. Um, but I just found at that particular historical moment in the early 1990s that I was just getting, you know, we had the we had a right wing government in power uh, back then. We still have a right wing government now. It's kind of it can it's you know my I'm I'm not right wing. I consider myself to be definitely left of centre. It was very frustrating, and it seemed to me that no matter how much you would expose the failings of these governments, they would still get re-elected. And I just felt like I could, I was more drawn to, and I felt I could make more of a contribution in the cultural realm. Um, it wasn't just the logical thing. It was a, it was more instinctive, but I was here. I was passionate about culture. And I thought, well, maybe this is a real, this is a, also a place of change. You don't always, you, you, the, the only way to introduce change into the world is not only through um, parliamentary politics. You know, power is all around us. And it exists in the party, in, amongst other things. It's in popular culture, you know, music, you know, film, wherever we want to look. Everything carries meaning and, and is a way of, of power being organised and, and change being explored and enacted. And I just felt like, yeah, this... And my dad had... The other thing I haven't really said is that uh, my dad... I'm Jewish. My dad had come out of Nazi Germany as a 15-year-old on kinder transport, which was the... Uh, trains that the Allies organised to bring young uh, Jewish kids out of Nazi Germany, but just before the war started, and he'd arrived in the UK aged 15 years old. Oh wow! Um, and uh, to my, you know, I was always very proud of the fact that he went on to be to not only study English, take a degree in English literature, but become an English teacher. How he old would your father? How old would your father be now if he was alive? Oh. Right, that's a oh, that's I really should know this. And <laughs> sorry, uh, because I'm going to tell you a, a tip. Yeah, um, hang on. So he was sixty three, he was sixty four when he died in nineteen eighty seven. So we've got to add thirteen. We've got to add thirty four years. So he would be kind of ninety eight. Yeah. So. Okay. Because also Alex Rosner is mm. yeah well, I know yeah yeah as well as a is sorry I interrupted you yeah go on say tell yeah, me about Alex, Alex Rosner yeah Alex Rosner is also a um I think if I remember correctly yeah. from the Schindler's List he's yeah. a uh, yeah. yeah he's in the he film also, he was he was also yeah he was on the I think he was a yeah he came out of Nazi Germany as well in an incredible story I think uh, it's in Love Saves the Day I mean I interviewed Alex for Love Saves the Day. He told me his story. I think it was through, I mean, I haven't 
reread this book ever. And it's, I wrote it a little while ago. I, I remember good bits of it for sure. Uh, but I think his he was his father was music. He was it was a musical family, and it was through music that he was able to uh, come out. You know, to survive. Um, I don't think he was on the kinder transport, but he was able to survive uh, the concentration camps, the, right. uh, the extermination camps. And he wound up. He wound up. He wound up doing in the end. In the end, yeah, he became absolutely incredible. Yeah, incredible yeah. sound man incredible. in some of the best clubs in New York and and some yeah. of the greatest places. But when you mentioned about your father, I said I had to mention. Alex no, that's a, yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, no, that's really, really. I'm really happy you 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 made that connection. Yeah. So my dad had, you know, was absolutely loved literature. I was trying to find meaning in life because of, you know, my parents dying and it was a time of transition and I wanted to spend more time thinking. So I thought, ah, go to New York, be near this guy Edward Said, who was a bit of a hero, Um, uh, study uh, for a doctorate in English English literature, but try and bring in other, I was going to do a bit of literature, a bit of film, a bit of music. I was going to do a chapter on rave culture because it had just been criminalised in in the UK in 1994 by by the John Major Conservative government. Please search for part two of this podcast on the platform you're watching or listening to. And please do not forget to follow us.